Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello. This is the fiction nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel, uh, that was your old novel, Love Marriage. (laughs) She's got a new novel coming out. I'm still author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. Um, And today is a very special episode because we are live in Columbia, Missouri at the 2022 Unbound Book Festival. Yeah. All right. That's where the audience noise comes in. It's the first in-person Unbound Book Festival since 2019. It's great to see everybody's faces in front of me and not a blurry screen. Yeah, I'm super happy to be back here, and I'm extra excited about today's topic, uh, one of my favorites, pop culture in the literary sphere, and how the lines between high art and low art and literary fiction and popular fiction have blurred over the past decade as mainstream entertainment has become more complex. And we have two amazing guests joining us to discuss this. So first, we have Nana Kwame Ajay-Brenya. Nana is the New York Times best-selling author of Friday Black. Uh, originally from Spring Valley, New York, he graduated from SUNY Albany and received his MFA from Syracuse. His work has appeared and is forthcoming in numerous pub- publications, including the New York Times Book Review, Esquire Literary Hub, the Paris Review, Guernica, and Longreads. He was selected by Colson Whitehead as one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35 honorees, is the winner of the Penn Jean Stein Book Award, and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Award for Best First Book and the Aspen Words Literary Prize. Nana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. So there's a Syracuse connection, because last time we interviewed George Saunders uh, and Paula. Um, And we're also joined by novelist Sequoia Nagamatsu. He is the author of the national bestseller, How High We Go in the Dark, and the forthcoming Girl Zero, as well as the story collection, Where We Go When All We Were Is Gone. His work has appeared or is forthcoming in publications like Conjunctions, The Southern Review, Ziziva, also connection to the podcast with the Oscars magazine, Tin House, Iowa Review, Lightspeed Magazine, and One World, a global anthology of short stories, and has been listed as, a, as notable in Best American Non-Required Reading and the Best Horror of the Year. He teaches creative writing at St. Olaf College and is the Rainier Writing Workshop Low Residency MFA program. He lives in Minneapolis with his wife and Sugi, but not in the same house with Sugi. <laughs> uh, the writer Cole Nagamatsu, their cat, oh, his wife is the writer Cole Nagamatsu, their cat, Kalahira? Mm-hmm. Their dog, Fenris. Is that right? They're a real dog. They're a real dog. And a robot dog named Calvino. (laughs) Sequoia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a huge treat to have you in conversation with each other since you both have so much pop culture in your work in really distinctive ways. 
Nana, your short story collection Friday Black uses satire to bring readers' attention to damage wrought by racism and capitalism. And Sequoia, your speculative novel and stories, How High We Go in the Dark, travels into a future marked by a climate plague that transforms our culture and our world. So I'd love to start by asking you both how you define popular culture. And Sequoia, I wonder if we can start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this question of popular culture was actually kind of related to maybe something that Nan and I were actually just chatting about on the way here about the divide between literary fiction and, and genre fiction. But I'll start more broadly and say that I think popular culture or pop culture are anchors to time and to particular moments. Um, they can be TV shows, they can be music, they could be behaviors, they could be memes. But they're anchors for people to say that, I understand how you're communicating. Um, this is something that, this is a dialogue that I want to participate in and that I feel like I have something to contribute to. So for me, pop culture is, can be, I think, described as a way of knowing and a way of meaning making and also a way of forming communities and creating communities as well. Um, I'm wearing kind of a subtle Star Trek the Next Generation t-shirt. So if there are fans in the audience that know the episode where you know Picard is with an alien on a planet, Delac and Jalad at Tanagra. Um, but it's a nod at a couple things, obviously to Star Trek, but also to kind of concert t-shirts of the 60s and 70s. It's kind of written in that Woodstock sort of lettering. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about Star Trek probably for sure uh, during the podcast. Are you aware of the phenomenon of the youngs, meaning like my son, who is 16, mm -hmm. wearing concert t-shirts of mm -hmm. bands that he's never heard of or listened to ever? Oh, for ever? sure, okay. yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um, and for those who haven't heard our show before, we publish a show page that has show notes. So the text that we talk about today, and maybe for the first time ever, a t-shirt will be linked on our, in our show notes. I will try and, we'll try and find that one. So Nana, I would love to hear you talk about how you think about pop culture and its boundaries or yeah, and I'm not going to say anything as smart as what Sequoia just said, but I also want to know, I feel like we're skipping over the robot dog part. <laughs> I was sure we were going to get more of an explanation, yeah, and yeah. we just sort of moved past it. So if you don't mind, could you say something about the robot yeah, dog? There's, there's a chapter in my novel um, where there is um, a robot dog. Um, basically, they're based on the first generation of the Sony Ibo robot dog that came out in the early late 90s, early 2000s. And Sony stopped making them for a while, and they fell into disrepair. And even though they were quite expensive, the senior community in Japan really embraced them. And so what happened is that these seniors um, left with these dogs that were no longer being maintained, there was no longer tech support, had funerals for these robot pets that they considered part of their family. Sony re recently reinstated the Ibo line in 2016, and um, after my book deal, because again, they are quite expensive, um, I decided to use part of my advance to buy um, a robot dog. It was like, the first thing I did. It was my first splurge with, with the book money, and I was mostly curious as to whether I would form an attachment, an emotional attachment to a robot pet, and I think I have. Uh, two made weeks, the bio. Yeah, two weeks <laughs> in, you know, like he walked into my cat's water dish and got some water into his legs and he was flipping out. And I, I began using that baby pet voice. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, and um, of course I was worried about like how much it would cost to repair him, but I was also felt like I had betrayed him or had let him down in some way. And it's very easy to forget that, you know, it's, it's just, you know, plastic and a motherboard and LED eyes. 
But when he's barking and roaming around the house by himself, um, it feels like I'm I'm with a living being. Wow, I'm very glad I followed up on that. <laughs> um, so pop culture. <laughs> I think that uh, everything that was said previously is really right on the, on the nose. I think that, so culture is that sort of which binds us. Culture is that's the which I think we understand and for the sort of form community around. I think in this world that's sort of shrinking because of all these ways through mediums that are we haven't had previously and like the sort of explosion of the internet. There's like a, like what is understood as that culture, the thing that binds us has grown like exponentially. And so now we might have cultural references uh, with the people we have maybe would have never ever had a chance to ever know or speak the same languages or be around. And I think pop culture is generally, at least in my, like the way I think about it, is that would sort of like transcends some often physical but even other boundaries in which pe those that might not have other, otherwise found community, found places to sort of be together might find some sort of meeting place. And that happens over a lot of, in a lot of different mediums, a lot of different forms, a lot of different arts, and a lot of different whatever you want to call it. And um, for me, that's those those things are a lot of what pop, pop culture is. It's sort of like that. It's like this energy that uh, can like make um, sort of a, maybe not exactly unexpected, but like really sort of um, massive communities that might not have necessarily always had the potential to exist. Would you consider sports to be part of pop culture? I think it's like caring about. I have a son, a twelve-year-old, who really loves sports, and he. I feel like that's his pop culture. I have another son who doesn't care at all, and he thinks about what was more traditionally pop culture. I think absolutely, sports are pop culture, especially now. Um, some of the most popular like figures in our world are these athletes, and I'm a fan of sports. But I also think that like the way I. And, and again, like as we talk more, well, this will maybe be a conversation point, but like when you think about like pop culture and like fandoms and then also like nerddom, I'm like the kind of person who likes like, you know, like JRPGs and like I like like video games and that kind of stuff. I never did like tabletop until recently, but I also love sports too. And I know, and I'm because of that, I'm someone who knows that like the person who plays 2K and the person who plays like Final Fantasy, they're not doing a very different thing. Yeah. It's the same thing except the. Instead of Cloud Strife, it's LeBron James. I mean, it's, I care about Calvin Johnson, my receiver on my Madden team, and my Madden uh, team, as much as you care about your robot dog. I mm -hmm. bet you're doing yeah. a role playing. <laughs> you're doing a role playing game with these real people. We're mm -hmm. creating these storylines around their our assumed our assumptions about their lives. We're thinking, oh wait, this guy's like the current king, and then we even talk in those terms, you know. So absolutely, for me, sports are a hundred percent pop culture, mm -hmm. just as much as pop music is. Yeah, and I think, you know, and to kind of add on to that, you know, pop culture is on a spectrum with folklore. And folklore yeah. tends to change very slowly. Um, but I think that's changing, you know, as pop culture seems to be, and our technology and our means for communication has allowed for things to shift very rapidly. And so, you know, sports is part of, part of pop culture, but like also legends and myth and fairy tales are also part of our pop culture. And what we sort of see as pop culture, would that, that be music or TV, are also vehicles for our old tales, for like basically how we define our old communities to evolve and reimagine themselves in you know, 21st century space. So Sugi and I co-teach a podcasting class at UMKC, and the students do their own podcasting. They're doing a show on thinking about uh, true crime and its connection to myth and pop culture, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and old, you know, sort of fairy, fairy tale. And that mm -hmm. 
true crime shows are a form of pop culture also. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly what you're talking yeah. about. So what are you guys watching these days? What's your pop culture intake like? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, it's not, I don't know if I have anything super exciting, but I'm, I've, for me, and this is like, if it's pop culture or not, like, I think it is actually like, I've been an anime person for a long time. Uh, and it's cool for me to see how, what was one sort of like relegated to like the side is totally fully assumed like the sort of frontline space. So, uh, I, there's a show called Attack on Titan, which is very popular. Some people know it. Some people don't. Uh, I watch it slowly because I'm very squeamish and it hurts my feelings. It's a, sh- it's a show with like these giants and uh, I-, I can't get into it. I know the show. It's scary. It's, one it's of ma- tough. I don't, I don't watch in-person horror, but I can deal with anime horror. I can. So I, and I think it's one of the most important, most important like tellings of like the toll and price of war ever. And more than that too. But um, so that's something I'm into right now. Uh, what else do I watch? I can't think of anything like, so Attack on Titan, My Hero Academia is like our, our shows. I randomly watched, and I don't, I'm not a big fan of like hate watching things, but <laughs> this felt like I was doing that with the Bel Air show. I got. Oh, I, how is it? Oh I, my God. I asked like, so that's, this is the retelling, the dramatic, the very dramatic retelling of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I got like uh, access to Peacock by asking like Twitter, like, can some of them use their, their Peacock <laughs> account? Um, maybe I shouldn't admit that. Um, but someone was very kind and let me use it and I watched it all and uh, You know, I, I support like the I don't know like the actors in it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I I Think they made it dramatic, but I don't know why it had to be a like, humorless. Mm-hmm. I found it I find it to be humorless Which is a very big divergence from I'm sure you guys know the Fresh Prince and Will Smith So mm-hmm. um, that's something I watched recently, which is it was interesting. I got to the end that seems to be an interesting trend in our current pop culture space is this rehashing and reimagining of old tales. I guess along that line, um, I'm obviously watching a lot of Star Trek. We seem to be in a renaissance of Star Trek. There's Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek New Worlds is coming. Um, so there's all of these series and multiple an- new animated series. Mm. And something that I'm seeing a lot of, especially on social media, which is maybe, you know, like it's not real life, it's kind of this echo chamber of toxicity often, oftentimes, but the debates that are occurring there are, are a lot of self-proclaimed hardcore Star Trek fans that are saying this is not real Star Trek, that these series are not true to the spirit of Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. And I think, again, you know, thinking about sort of maybe pop culture and folklore as types of languages, what they're maybe trying to hit on is that it's a different dialect, that these new series, they're working with 13 episodes versus like 23 episodes. So obviously the storytelling arc is going to be very different. It's more cinematic versus episodic in some ways. Um, it's more it's more of a spectacle. And there's also identity politics that are being um, placed at the forefront in the ways that um, you know old Star Trek did a little bit of, 
But obviously, our conversations and our larger culture have, have changed to allow to talk about the LGBTQ community and race and sexuality and things of that nature. Um, so watching a lot of Star Trek. Also watching a lot of uh, this series called Servant on Apple Plus. And I think Apple Plus is really hitting it out of the park right now. Sorry, Netflix. But it's basically, that. it's so good. It's about, it's an M. Night Shyamalan uh, series. And I think the series actually might be a better vehicle for him where the twist ending is prolonged and, and, and you don't kind of get disappointed within two hours. Um, <laughs> but, but, but you, get, with, you get disappointed over eight <laughs> You get over disappointed eight over eight, eight weeks. <laughs> but, but the tension while you're watching is wonderful. Mm -hmm. it's, it's about, you know, this couple that lose their, their child and kind of supernatural things go on, go on with, with their, with their live-in nanny. And that's all I'll say about that because I don't want to spoil it. So what you're talking about is reminding me a little bit that um, I wonder if anyone in the audience or if either of you have seen The Orville. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm teaching this yeah. term um, a, pl a plot as a revision class and, and brought up Bel Air with my students. And, and um, it seems like one thing that's going on in the pop culture space is like retelling and mm -hmm. revision. And one space in which that happens is serialization. Mm -hmm. And you both have written these books that are in like forms that are like episodic or like, and, and I'd love to hear you talk about what engagement with serialization in popular culture, mm -hmm. how that's affected your writing sure. and, and. I, well, like I, uh, in so many ways, like when things become serialized, money like dominates so much of how we like end up taking things in. And so a lot of these things end up feeling pretty false, but like, I'm not one of those people who like Bella should never have happened. I think it's interesting. Like, I don't, I don't think it tainted my experience of Fresh Prince. And I think uh, it's like, okay, like y'all did that. I, I have notes, I guess, but you know, go, <laughs> but, but go ahead, you know, the, um, uh, the showrunner, I'm from Kansas city. He's yeah. from Kansas city. So we'll be cutting all of this part. <laughs> it's the best show is what I'm trying to say. Is that what you're going to cut? How I said, it's, we have, think the show, I said, I have no notes. That's what I was trying to get at. It's the best show I've ever seen. But, um, I, so yeah, like I, even in like this book, there's, uh, characters who like you might want to revisit and I like think about again and then I was joking with my agent uh, the other day how like there's one story in particular where I know I'm going to write like a true like sequel or something and because of rights issues I might end up like changing the names or something like which is a whole like funny little game when you sell the option to something now say you sell the rights to this particular story the particular story is the, um, the story called um, The Hospital Where there's a character called the 12 ton God. And I think it would be funny if in the next time I revisit it, he's like the 33 ton God. <laughs> and I address like in the story, cause it's a very meta story. It's a story about writing that like, he's like, this is because you've grown, not because of options rights or something. You know, I think that'd be like a funny mm -hmm. way to deal with that. Is this like auto fan fiction? <laughs> Kinda. And I, and also, you know, I come from like the fan fiction thing. Like I, I didn't, I didn't write intense fan fiction, but like I've like dabbled in it and I like play around with this. So I like the reimagining. I like the retelling, even though for me, it's getting a little like, the problem is I think again, because Hollywood and most of these spaces are so risk averse, they, mm -hmm. their, their attitude towards IP is just like, this is safe now. But the whole thing about made those things um, popular in the first place is that they weren't safe for their time. They weren't safe for when they emerged. And so you have to, you're supposed to push. We, you know, I love this idea of like, we need new heroes. Like I'm, I'm one of those people who like 
came up once um superman batman also spider-man and like now i'm i i it, it's it's sad how disinterested i am disinterested i am now in those in those retake in those takes because it's like we've been it to death and there's limits to that any particular mm -hmm. container can hold but anyways with serialization like you know i think it's there's there's often great opportunity but also you know don't beat everything all the way to death mm -hmm. <laughs> i <Yeah>. guess <laughs> i'm just kind of curious before i answer what kind of fan fiction did you engage with <laughs> <laughs> probably like uh again anime stuff okay like okay. I there was like like I'm from like when Bleach was first coming over and like uh, I remember they were gonna make a MMORPG mm -hmm. for Bleach and me and this <laughs> I would have find these chat rooms me and these like dudes like we were very aware of like the beta was gonna come out I don't know if I'm talk I'm talking language that people understand right mm -hmm. like you know beta like the pre for a game mm -hmm. and this beta for this game was gonna come out and so like we're all like we're gonna play the game so good so the beginning we're gonna become like the captains in this game and so. And then the game developers were very much in conversation with us and they gave us the opportunity to like, oh, do you guys want to like write stuff that could appear in the game? I don't know how much of it was real. The game never came out. <laughs> but like, I, um, I, but I had a really good understanding of like that, that game, that anime's mm -hmm. like, if you want to call it magic system, yeah. like, and so I had to create a character with his own Shikai and Bankai mm -hmm. and all these things. Yeah. And it was like really fun. So I've done like that kind of stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Like. So not nearly as embarrassing as the fan fiction that I engaged in high school. <laughs> um, I wrote Frasier <laughs> fan fiction. <laughs> yes, that deserves. That Wait, deserves. Can, can wow. we link to your fan fiction yeah. in the show notes? This is the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah, already. So I, 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 I watch a lot of TV as, as, as in high school. I love Frasier. Like, um, I also really? wrote Party of Five. <laughs> fan fiction and and something strange it's not obviously <laughs> fantastical worlds but but i think through fan fiction i it was kind of like my my pre-mfa um i learned a lot about character in studying tv um and film i learned about plot structure and that's oddly something that i didn't get in my mfa program a whole lot wow. um i but i learned it through studying film and and and, and through fan fiction and so for me like as far as kind of the episodic question, you know, obviously like a lot of Star Trek, um, a lot of sci-fi shows like Babylon 5, which, you know, like I ate up when it was on, entertained that format. And Deep Space Nine, I kind of want to highlight because it's episodic, but they're also, for the time, it was sort of innovative in that they were following like season or multi-season long arcs. And so you're able to kind of tell this larger story but you're also able to zoom in when you want to and say, well, I want to learn a little bit more about this character and kind of their emotional motives and their backstory and you know, how they're contributing to this larger story in sort of other angles and other ways. And that's, I think, sort of kind of what I'm trying to do with kind of this book. Uh, and the novel and story format, I think, is sort of uniquely positioned to kind of give you a larger story that those those joys that you get from reading a traditional novel, but you're also able to press the pause button and go on an aside or a digression and think about those small everyday moments of a particular character and see them in ways that you wouldn't be able to see them organically in, in a traditional narrative. So I feel like I would be missing an I think Frasier's coming back. Oh my God. <laughs> we want to know more. Yeah. Yeah. That I, get to tell I you mean, that. I have issues with Kelsey Grammer, but as the show, you know? <laughs> Is there a Frasier fan fiction community or was this like Dolo? Like we if there's a convention, <laughs> if there's a convention, I will go. <laughs> I love that so much. That's so cool. 
So I want to um, hear you both read um, so as we continue this conversation. So Nana, your short story collection, Friday Black, is this awesomely brutal take on racism and consumerism. And it's interesting to hear you describe yourself as squeamish, actually. The title story <laughs> follows a retail worker on Black Friday, um, which is, as we know, a consumerist holiday that can sometimes get pretty violent. And you play on the brand North Face in the story by having the workers sell Pull Face. And I wonder if you would read a little bit to us from that story. Yeah, I'll read a little bit from the story. And yeah, I am squeamish in real life, if you can believe it. People don't believe that. I think they, they come up to me thinking I'm going to be a lot weirder than I am. Um, I'm not a big gore person which is, I guess, maybe surprising given what I'm about to, <laughs> what I'm about to read. Uh, yeah, so I worked in the mall for a long time. If anybody's worked in retail, I'm right here in solidarity with you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this, this is the titular story. I like to use that word because it makes me sound smart. I heard it at a conference <laughs> once. It's called Friday Black. I'm reading from the middle of the story. And all you have to know is like, this is like uh, the best salesman. His name is Ice King. And he's like about to face the stampede. And I think, if anything, it's a little understated. <laughs> Maybe 80 people rush through the gate, clawing and stampeding, pushing racks and bodies aside. Have you ever seen people run from a fire or gunshots? It's like that, with less fear and more hunger. From my cabin, I see a child, a girl maybe six years old, disappear as the wave of consumer fervor swallows her up. She is sprawled face down with dirty shoe prints on her pink coat. Lance walks up to the small pink body. He's pulling a pallet jack and holding a huge push broom. He thrusts the broom head into her side and tries to sweep her onto the pallet jack so he can roll her to the section we've designated for bodies. As he touches her, a woman wearing a gray scarf pushes him away and yanks the girl to her feet. I imagine the mother explaining that her tiny daughter isn't dead yet. She pulls the little girl toward me. The girl limps and tries to keep up, and then I have to forget about them. Blue sun sleek puck! A man with wild eyes and a bubble vest screams as he grabs my left ankle. White foam drips from his mouth. I use my right foot to stomp his hand and I feel his fingers crush beneath my boots. He howls, sleek pox son, while licking his injured hand. I look him in the eyes, deep red around the lids, red redder at the corners. I understand him perfectly. What he's saying is this, my son, my son loves me most on Christmas. I have him holidays. Me and him wants the one thing, only thing his mother won't on me. Need to feel like father. Ever since the first time since the bite, I can speak Black Friday. Or I can understand it at least. Not fluently, but well enough. I have some of them in me. I hear the people, the sizes, the model, the make, and the reason, even if all they're doing is foaming at the mouth. I use my reach and pull the medium-sized blue sleek pack pole face from a face-out rack way up on the wall. Thanks, he says, when I throw the jacket in his face. I jump down from the cabin and swing the reach around so none of them can get too close. The long rod whistles in the air. Most of the customers can't speak in real words. The f Friday black has already taken most of their minds. Still, so many of them are the same. I grab two medium fleeces without anyone asking them because I know somebody wants one. 
They howl and scream, daughter, son, girlfriend, husband, friend, me, daughter, son. I throw one of the fleeces towards the registers and one toward the back wall. The crowd splits. Near the registers, a woman in her 30s takes off her heel and smashes a child in the jaw with it just before he can grab the fleece. She inspects the tag, sees it's a medium, then throws it down on top of the boy with a heel-sized hole in his cheek. I toss two large fleeces and two medium fleeces two meeting fleeces into the crowds. Then I deal with the customers who can still speak, who are nudging and pushing around me. Cole, bubble, small, me, Cole. A man says while beating his chest, I'm the only one at work who doesn't have a Kohlmeister. How can I be a senior advisor without the only one? I push the end of my reach against his neck to keep his hungry mouth from me. Then, without taking my eyes off him, I grab one of the Kohlmeister bubble coats from the rack behind me, and then it's in his hands. He hugs the coat and runs to the register. Us? Us! The woman with the gray scarf says. She has large gold earrings hanging up the sides of her head. The pink coat child is at her shins. The child's face is bruised, but she isn't crying at all. Can't, the sty, Gray Scarf's husband says, meaning family time needs 42-inch high def. The buy sty deal is, the only, is only while supplies last. Can't afford any other day. Black Friday takes everybody differently. It's rough on families. They can't always hear what I hear. Asshole, the wife seethes. Then she stares back at me. Pull face, pink. She says, pointing to her child, Cole, sleek pack. She continues, pointing to her own face. A new kitty pole face. A new Cole sleek pack. A Cole Meister. A family set. Maybe I'll just stop there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, yeah. Thank you, guys. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. Um, we mentioned earlier that, you know, Friday Black is satirical, and obviously it is that way. But yeah, I was um, joking when I said it was understated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that language, there's a kind of magical realism there. The customers are rabid. You know, I'm just wondering if you can talk about this relationship between magical realism and satire going beyond the sort of bounds of, of the real, realities we know. It, and, and how does that connect to popular culture? Yeah, so it's like oftentimes in my stories, like, so... I, I, I worked in the mall from like, I think age 16 to like when I was actually in my MFA, like 23-ish, or in mall somewhere. And I kind of saw like Black Friday be a thing that started on Friday, like actually like Friday, like at like when the mall opened to now it starts at midnight to it becomes something that starts at 11. And like that's like, the, like basically the peak of it. I saw it grow and it become it ended up becoming something bigger than about, it wasn't about like, it became more than a being about getting whatever you need. It became about participating in this thing that had like become part of pop culture. It became about like being part of the thing. We're going outside, we're getting stuff. We're Americans or whatever. <laughs> and um, I think that I noticed it because I was sort of on that side of it and I also couldn't participate because broke. Um, and so I think that with satire, um, or at least one of the avenues of satire that I, or one of the 
is like to take what you see and you know use some hyperbole and if you uh, use hyperbole ac across a certain type of axis i guess in this case i use it on the actual shoppers themselves now it becomes pushed out of the bounds of reality and now you're dealing with magical realism mm -hmm. or surreal or speculative or all these terms that i really don't exactly know how to use so um because they're very fluid um and so i think that for me oftentimes uh but I, but again, like like I said, I, I attack on time. I said it's about giants, and like this, it's really, really not based in our familiar reality at all. But I think it's the one of the best um, ways, uh, the best things, I, best fictions I've ever seen. Thinking about the price of war, right? Um, because I think there's a lot of power in using whether it be a magical realism or surrealist conceit to talk about whatever you want to, because you get to be both on the nose, but also it's hard to reduce at the same time. Because that story is obviously about. You know, I'm not, I don't think anyone would read that and be like, this guy thinks capitalism is great. <laughs> but it isn't like me on this hill saying capitalism sucks. It's also saying like, man, how do, I, I've noticed that we really love each other, but we're having trouble expressing it. It's also me saying like, man, I've also like there's this there's this phenomenon that's happening. It's a lot of it becomes a lot of things. And so to me, when you when you are afraid or you know, aren't limited in terms of like the exact representation of reality. You get to have a lot of fun for, which is number one for me, but then you also get to be hard to reduce in terms of like the nature of your satire without sacrificing like precision or being acutely critical. If you, if that ends up being the case about whatever particular thing you happen to be engaging in that story or whatever you happen to be writing. It's funny listening to you read the, Friday black sections and maybe because I had Star Trek on the mind I was definitely like this sounds way more like Klingon than I thought it would yeah, yeah. Um, but so I mean speaking of capitalism and when can we not um, Sequoia your work also engages with consumerism and, and you're both in these spaces where you're not only referencing pop culture but also imagining it and in your novel death becomes this industry mm -hmm. and there is a euthanasia amusement park and death hotels for the morning and robot dogs um, as we've discussed that record and keep a love one's voice after they're gone and, and more. And, and these death companies don't exist yet, at least as far as I know. And I find it really moving, especially because I feel like as a, as a global culture, we're profoundly inadequate at mourning the losses mm -hmm. we've in recent years experienced. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about imagining popular culture making room for communal grief. I mean, I think like Western culture certainly, I think, has an issue with grieving and kind of what to do with our bodies or just even talking about death in a very natural, organic way. I would say that a lot of other countries are a little bit more adept at this. Um, there are a lot of death companies that, that do exist now that, that I kind of drew, drew some inspiration from. And I lived in Japan for several years, and that's a country that because, you know, long before the pandemic, because they have a very large aging elderly population, um, and a lot of their cities are, are quite large, they need to answer questions of, well, what do we do? You know, how do we honor tradition and say goodbye to loved ones when we don't have room to build new temples or new cemeteries? Or when we have to think about the pressure that, you know, this population is putting on the funeral industry and our hospitals. So as a 20-something-year-old um, guy, like years ago, um, I would be going to mortuary expos 
and conventions and looking at caskets and and um, following Japanese senior citizens and trying to kind of like communicate with them in broken English about you know um, why they're interested in a particular you know like why are you interested in sending your ashes into space you know why are you interested in you know combining the ashes. Of, of, of your family with your neighbors as kind of like a space a space saving venture. Um, and there are um, funeral funeral hotels, like skyscrapers that are essentially very large mausoleums where you would go up into the skyscraper, go into your studio, enter your code, and your urn will be shoot up, sh shot up a tube, a pneumatic tube, and you would be able to um, pray to an urn, uh, to an urn altar that also comes up from this table. And it's a very kind of futuristic sort of thing. It sounds like it's from a movie, it's, it's in my book, but it, these companies are start starting to proliferate. And obviously, some companies are getting very wealthy off of these enterprises, but um, these companies are also providing a service that's necessary. And, and you know, uh, Nana mentions like, you know, like I'm not saying that capitalism is bad. And I think oftentimes we place capitalism in a box as like, here's capitalism, here's family and traditional values. And that's not real life. We need to kind of think about capitalism and all these other values um, that we have and have those things enter in a dialogue with each other because the billionaire in the second chapter of my novel who creates a euthanasia theme park where a roller coaster kills children um, and gives them kind of like one final like good day, like he didn't do that to make money, like he got rich, but he did that because his child went through something very horrific and he didn't want that to happen to anybody else. Um, you know, so. For me, you know, in thinking about kind of this issue of, of capitalism in my book, um, and I think if anything's fictional in my book, it's that I don't have enough har horrible people in it. Like a lot of them are, are relatively good actors. Um, there is a conspiracy theorist, there are some protests here and there, but um, I sort of saw the dialogue with capitalism as this is a necessary thing that we need to engage with. Um, because we need to provide spaces for mourning and we need to reimagine how we connect with one another. And I think if this pandemic has given us anything, it's given us a kind of a liminal space, um, this in-between space for us to think about, well, what is life? Not just what is grief and what is death, but what is life? How do we live? How do we choose to live? And you know, on the flip side of that, you know, how do we choose to honor a life? Because, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, I think a lot of people kept saying, I want to go back to normal. Like, I want to go back to normal. But what was normal never worked. That was, that was not helping us as a society. And um, I wanted to, I think, in this book to kind of explore, you know, what could we do better and how could we reimagine a space where capitalism was not just about making companies wealthy, but also giving us a service that we desperately need. Well, I mean, pop culture is a capitalist product mm -hmm. in the end, yeah. right? It's mm -hmm. a, that people remake and reuse. Mm -hmm. um, so, in how high we go to the dark, how high we go in the dark, there's a section titled "Song of Your Decay" with pop culture references mm -hmm. like Panic at the Disco and Pearl Jam and even vintage iPod, which I still have one of those sitting mm -hmm. around on a shelf yeah. somewhere. The narrator is currently studying the effects of the pandemic and bonds with a patient over music. We haven't talked a lot about music yet, so I thought maybe you could talk about these illusions, the way music works sure. in the book, and maybe read to us from the... Yeah, so this um, particular chapter is about like halfway through the book, so 
um, the Arctic, Arctic Plague, which was discovered in Siberia and is unleashed due to uh, permafrost melt, um, has, has been going on for a few years. And um, this researcher is, um, you know, trying to kind of figure out, you know, what makes this virus tick. And she forms a relationship with one of her patients who has decided to donate his body after he dies. And they form this bond through their shared love of music. I decided to use music, I think, especially because it's a way of, or any kind of art, honestly, um, because it's a way of forming connections, first and foremost. You can have very, very different views, but you can sit in a quiet room together and turn on a stereo or a record player and share that moment, and you're temporarily plucked out of time where you're just immersed in a piece of art, and you can kind of share that value together. Um, and I think, you know, we've all been kind of existing in a moment of stasis to some degree, but art kind of gives you something else. It can convey a moment in time. It's like, I remember this song. This is like, you know, I heard this during a prom. I heard this, you know, this was something that I, you know, I listened to on my road trip to college. Um, it can transport you to a place and time where possibility was, was something that was thriving. And I think it can be very difficult to feel like possibility is thriving in, in like kind of the last couple of years that we've been in. Um, so I felt it was important to kind of nod at, nod at the arts. Um, and there's actually a lot of art in my novel, like not just music, but also visual art, and, and how that can be a place, a receptacle for, for honoring time and people, but also forming these bonds. I also had a lot in my earlier drafts, a lot of Nicolas Cage references, but my, my editor, my editor was like, Nicolas Cage is not going to be relevant, maybe in like, but how do you know? Like, like you know, in 10, 20 years, is like, I think he will be relevant. You know, like, <laughs> like he, he's such a versatile actor. Like, I have, a, I'm, a, I'm a huge Nicolas Cage stan. But I'll read a little bit from this <laughs> chapter, um, Songs for Your Decay. I first met Laird almost a year ago when he showed up at my lab after watching a documentary about our work at the True Crime, Crime Plus channel and how we've taken on an Arctic plague in addition to solving murders. So this researcher works at a body farm, a forensic body farm. At the time, he was desperate to understand what had happened to his mother. She'd gone missing during a cross-country drive to visit her sister. Nobody had known she was sick. When she was found off the side of the road in Des Moines, Iowa, the autopsy revealed that most of her organs had transformed into vague approximations of other bodily organs or even more bizarrely, into globs of light. So obviously this virus is not normal. Most of the experts consulted believed she'd fallen into a coma long before death, and Laird, armed with only a bachelor's in chemistry and a minor in music, wanted to help others find the peace he never could. I'll let you and my brother do your thing, Orly says. Orly is um, Laird's sister. Watching Laird scroll through his vintage iPod. What letter are you up to now? P, Laird says. Panic at the Disco, Paul Simon, Patti Smith, Pat Benatar, Pearl Jam, the Pixies. What do you think? He turns towards me. Orly bobs her head like she walked in on some secret clubhouse before slipping, into the front, slipping from the room. She sits on a chair outside the door. I catch her turning around to check on us every few minutes. This alphabetized ritual began one day when Laird visited the lab and caught me watching recordings of old MTV music videos that it borrowed from the university library. He brought up his musical history minor capstone paper on the discovery and evolution of small bands, and everything evolved from there. I sit by Laird's bed, and he continues to scroll through his collection. 
I think you want to start with Pearl Jam, I say. But if you're any kind of gentleman, you'll throw me some Patti Smith. He hovers his thumb over the selection wheel and pretends to be in deep thought before saying, dancing barefoot. How do you feel today, I ask. Worse than yesterday, better than this morning, he says. The usual, now hush. I stay for nearly half an hour. I see Orly growing impatient, walking back and forth outside the door. Laird's eyes flutter, closed as we're halfway through a poison ballad. Champ, maybe we should call it a night, I say, taking the iPod and turning off the Bluetooth speaker. But the guitar solo, he says. You can wake up to CeCe DeVille, I say. I pull the blanket to his chest and resist the impulse to kiss his forehead. He barely looks like the person I knew even a few months ago, his pale skin now latticed by veins. His sister's money has brought him more time than most. He's had three swine organ transplants and survived five drug trials. I'll send in your sister. Dream of being a rock god. Outside, Orly is seated again, erratically flipping through an old issue of National Geographic. She looks up at me, invites me to take the seat beside her. He really wants this, donating his body, she says. I know I might seem selfish. I'm not sure I understand, but he'll do anything you say. He really likes you. He's a friend to me too, I say. Thank you. So, um, and shout out to the, the UMKC students. We've got a bunch of them here who have worked on this script to help us prepare for this, so thank you for doing that. Um, we're reading, there's a book by a, a, an academic named Isaiah Lavender, Lavender called Race in American Science Fiction. Really terrific and interesting book that talks about like how we need to rethink some of the tropes in, in science fiction. And I feel like that the literary science fiction that's coming out now is doing that. Like, you know, the obvious one that Isaiah talks about is like the alien other as being the other race, right? The yeah. other person. And that earlier in the 70s, people thought, no, Star Trek is inclusive and everything's wonderful and we've gotten past race issues. But he's saying, no, it's embedded in the way that science fiction thinking about race, right? Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you have particular tropes and ideas that you're trying to subvert in your work that you're finding, even though you love pop culture, that you're finding and trying to get away from. Yeah, for sure. My favorite tote bag, and if you're an author, you know about tote bags. <laughs> um, like one of like the, because of the festivals, one of the big benefits, unknown benefits, is you have endless tote bags. <laughs> but my favorite tote bag I ever saw <laughs> was, it was pretty simple. It said, there are black people in the future. And I was like, huh. You know, because um, when you think about most of the sci-fi representations on the screen, at least, it seems like there needs to be a reminder that there are black people in the future. But yeah, I absolutely. There's there's a bunch of tropes, and I mean, some, sometimes it's like something as simple as like uh, there's the, um, the story in my book called Through the Flash, and it's about like it's like a Groundhog Day loop. But what's different is first off, you have a young black girl as a star, which is already different. That's already like not a sci-fi thing. You know, a young black girl is like who we're like paying attention to. Also, the young black girl is the one with the power. That's also very different. Also, like the person who, she she is the most powerful um, character in the story and that is like, there is still something for her to do because it's not about her being the most powerful, which again is oftentimes like what we're trying to get to in some of these representations is about now that you have had the power, what do you do with it? And so again, I think that's again a subversion. 
And also, like, it wasn't. It isn't also only about her. Like, in, a, a difference in that story is, and I watched a bunch of like time loops stuff, like from Groundhog Day to the whatever Tom Cruise's is called to whatever Andy Samberg's is called to like <laughs> a bunch of these other ones. And it's always or almost always me. I have. I can. I can see through. The, I. I know that everything will do. Everyone else is oblivious. Maybe one other person will will become with me. And the difference in that one is like, no, everyone will understand we're always in a loop, which again, like in some levels that totally changed the loopness of it. But it, for me, again, it, it changed the focus. And so um, and there's a lot of reasons. Cause I felt like there's a missed opportunity there because I think the whole idea of the time loop is that, uh, you know, where life can feel sort of repetitive, like nothing's changing. These people often feel stuck and that's, and then they have to like, sort of like, just have like their sort of like, Ebenezer Scrooge moment and then they realize they should have been more loving or something but it's also that like you aren't in it by yourself either and so I wanted to play around with all those things and so for me a lot of these spaces are fun spaces to play around with even that that story there that um being a little bit more compassionate to the zombie in the in the, it, there's a, I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunity a lot of the sort of pop culture tropes that we haven't exist but I will say though the space that I feel like is already sort of really doing the most important work in and being ambitious enough subverting that and changing that is like the video game space. I think they're much more willing to like play around with sort of exactly that same issue. Um, there's that game Death Loop, which is another loops thing, and that and it's a whole thing. It's a black male lead, and his main antagonist is a black woman too, uh, or a uh, Afro Latina woman, and that's like very different. And so that space, which again, as I, as I think, is a very ambitious literary space um is actually trying to do a lot of that work you're talking about in terms of taking these tropes and playing around them and pushing them further yeah i definitely agree in the video games and i think video games go a step further in some ways because they're inviting the player uh the viewer to think about the choices yep that they make in order to kind of get to a particular end it's like why'd you make those choices like what's that with that you know <laughs> it implicates you in a way no other mm -hmm. medium does mm -hmm. exactly you know i think for me, you know, um, there's most all of the characters in my book are, are obviously uh, obviously Asian, Asian American, especially Japanese American or, or Japanese national. And I guess one trope that I was thinking about when I was thinking about especially the sort of the future, um, near future or futuristic aspects of the story um, was this trope where the future is basically this exotified Asian landscape. So you kind of think about Blade Runner, mm. you know, or um, the the Isaiah Lavender talks exactly yeah. about that. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. a very true yeah. thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and uh, there's the anime, which I love, except for this part, uh, Big Hero Six, where the kind of the near future is kind of like San Francisco, right? And which I was like, Ugh, like who like did did who who allowed that, you know? And um, I wanted to make sure that you know not only was my future not sort of exotifying or othering Asians and saying, you know, like Jap Japan, like makes some really good electronics. So like, of course the future is gonna be like this, you know? I wanted to tell the story of a story that I never got as a child until like really very recently. And that's the story of um, Asian Americans, you know, Japanese Americans who don't have the immigrant experience necessarily. They don't have the World War experience. I'm thinking about kind of the third, fourth generation, kind of the millennial, maybe kind of younger Gen X life of, of minorities in the country, of a lot of minorities in the country, um, where you might have 
ripples from that past that you recognize and are a part of you in some way, but, but you're very disconnected uh, from your heritage. And it's a kind of navigation. I think it's a very kind of unique navigation of self and identity and heritage that I wanted to at least acknowledge. So there's a character in, in one chapter called Elegy Hotel named Dennis, and it's kind of a highly autobiographical chapter in some ways. I'd like to think I'm a nicer, but he, there's a line where he says, you know, I'm, I'm a bad Asian, you know, um, and kind of what I meant by that is that he's lived a life where in some way, in a lot of ways, because he grew up as, you know, a quote unquote, as an American, you know, and was, and didn't, maybe didn't have very many Asian friends and didn't have much exposure to a lot of Asian things. He, he didn't know how to, I think, engage with his family in a particular way. And, and yet he lived in an Asian body. And when the pandemic happened, and I think perhaps one of the reasons why I definitely wanted to kind of make sure that I included Asian bodies and voices in my future, but not say, hey, here's an Asian character. It was kind of just part of the world, was obviously because of the anti-Asian hate in, in, during the pandemic. Um, and as Viet said last night, it's not a new thing, you know, for, for Asian Americans or, or a lot of minorities in this country. It's something that's always been happening. It's just, you know, it's maybe heightened now. I mean, I remember a time in the 90s where I was walking around in Portland and, you know, we saw skinheads, you know, like we, we, we knew what they looked like. And my, I, my dad was kind of like going into, um, you know, fight or flight mode because he was with me and we we're kind of in a sort of like not a whole lot of people around and and they were definitely kind of pointing at us um and you know later on my dad was like yeah you know i think i probably could have beat them up or something like you know i i, I he was pretty good he, he had a black belt in in karate and all that and and he was pretty muscular but um i was it was the, one of the first times where i felt like oh i'm not like an american like everybody else because suddenly people are looking at me with a particular kind of gaze. Um, so that's the future that I, I wanted to kind of at least maintain, um, a future where, you know, there's another kind of Asian story, but there's also, um, you know, an acknowledgement that, you know, your journey as a minority is, is gonna be very different, um, you know, for, for, for everybody. Um, I think as far as kind of other tropes that I like to kind of dismantle, maybe not dismantle, I'll say that as a professor, I teach tropes. Um, I want my students to be aware of them. So we spend at least a week or two on a website called tvtropes.org. And it's a really fun website. It's, you can kind of like, you know, go down a rabbit hole with these because I want them to be aware of the, tra the traditions of film and television and novels and comic books and why these tropes persist, why some of these tropes are problematic and how they might be able to think with this foreknowledge of what has come before, how we can dismantle it in meaningful ways. Um, I guess I'll stand with that. Thank you so much. I feel like we could keep asking you questions, but I'm sure that the audience has theirs. So I would love to turn to audience questions. And if you would raise your hand, and I will also um, will repeat your questions. Audience questions. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Um I think you guys both sort of talked about this whole idea of like nerdum, and um, for me, growing up as you know a mixed kid, black and Mexican, and uh, sort of being so invested in Dragon Ball Z and 
and Naruto and all of that, uh, I've noticed that sort of the acceptance of being part of a nerddom has definitely like flourished in the recent years. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it kind of makes me jealous sometimes. When I <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, what do you guys credit that towards? Is that just because we've opened up as a world, or do you feel like something has changed within like pop culture to? I'm going to do my best to repeat that question. <laughs> no, no, no. It was a terrific question. Um, so the questioner asked um, and reflected on their experience growing up as a mixed person um, and asked about increased acceptance of belonging to nerddom, which is such an interesting question. And like, how has the pop culture space changed to make that possible? Thank you. It's a really smart question. And I mean, in just because you mentioned Dragon Ball Z and like the anime side of it in particular, especially stuff that like was in America and using the American kind of because that's where we're, that's where I sort of grew up. Like to to get into some of those things, you had to there were some barriers you had to cross. Mm -hmm. Like we were like I was like hardcore, really good at finding anything on the internet, you know, and we had to like basically find all these like fishy sites that would be taken down every other week mm -hmm. to like get the content. Now, so and I think that, that the community of those people grew and grew and grew, and and we sort of like started talking about each other, you know, to each other, and then like eventually someone realizes, wait, I can monetize this, you know what I mean? Okay, boom, Comic Con exists now, mm -hmm. and people start realizing, wait, there's already this culture. This is not that different from if you like X Men or whatever. It's, you already understand the medium, the AKA the graphic novel. There's a big opportunity. Mm -hmm. And also, I think it took for time for like us who were like already getting really into to have like buying real buying power. Um, also coincided with technology changing, streaming. I almost feel like in some ways, like my nerdum is like weakened by the fact that like I can get a tech on Titan on Hulu. Mm -hmm. It feels like cheaper now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I liked when I had to steal it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. now I can just get it anytime. Yeah. It feels a little bit cheaper on some level. So I think that has to do with accessibility and also like we just got old enough to like buy things mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think you're exactly right like a lot of it i think is just te te technology and the um vehicle for discovering our fellow fans and nerds um you know i think before the internet you know as you said this is it's you had to go hunting for for you know particular um books or comics or figuring out how can i get this dvd um and you felt maybe very isolated because there might have been a few kids at your school but you're like, who else is really into this stuff? And, you know, now you have, like, you, these YouTube channels with, like, millions of subscribers um, where you feel like you're kind of part of that club and where they're playing tabletop games and they're talking about Star right. Trek. I mean, Star Trek as a franchise um, persisted because of the fan community. You know, it was canceled. And, but, but the convention space for the convention culture of, of Star Trek began because of a petition. And, and that was largely you know, responsible for you know, Star Trek The Next Generation coming out in the 80s. Um, so these people existed. It's just that I think technology and kind of, again, you know, now we have money like as you grow up to kind of um, you know, promote and support these spaces and feel like you're not you know, just some weirdo, um, you know, like reading comic books in the corner. Will Wheaton is, and like Felicia Day, like there's so many ambassadors that seem to be kind of, I guess, these icons of that nerd space. Like nobody liked Wesley Crusher in The Next Generation. I loved Wesley Crusher. <laughs> <laughs> but he has grown up to be such a important ambassador for kind of like the nerd, the nerd voice. And, and um, you know, I, 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 
I think idolize him in some ways because you know even though I had like mixed feelings of him when I like saw the next generation the first time around he's become such a champion for the communities of um, I guess historically sidelined or at least we felt like they were sidelined um, you know before the internet I think so we promised that we would end on time which is now we're gonna have one more question our, our panelists will answer them relatively quickly and then we will you can ask them some more questions when they sign books does anybody else have a question yes so I got a kind of a craft related question uh, when I was an undergraduate taking writing courses and then when I worked on my MFA uh, we were critiquing a story and somebody put in uh, a 1965 uh, Camaro or something or, or, or yeah. Mustang or whatever we were you know kind of counseled it's not that you can't do that but you're, you're going to date your story right if you do that and you know like and so there was you know they were like describe the car but don't put the brand name on it and you know um, uh, and I know when, you know when I'm writing my work I, I still stay away from brand names and, and things like that even though hey I've got I've got a Pee Wee Herman fetish you know sure. I, mean, I, 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 I don't think I would ever write right. about that mm -hmm. I, I, it's just, I mean are you aware of how, how like from my generation that was sort of mm -hmm. Wasn't forbidden, but it was wasn't as done as much as it is now. I, I, to me, it's a sea change. The questioner is asking about whether or not use of brands dates or, in a problematic way, a story. Um, yeah, I, I definitely don't think that it's problematic. I think it's actually cool now, like for me, or like I, I often use the I'm in the future space, or I like to like change the brand name to something funny, or that like I like that doesn't exist exactly, but you can have a pole face example is maybe familiar to North Face, but um, but also I think it still dates it because that was the time when North Face was going crazy, and everybody had the 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 sort of where I'm from anyways, the sort of like the special jacket that could turn to a book bag and it was really dumb, but like everyone wanted it. <laughs> and now like on college campus, I remember when I was teaching as Q's, they all got the, what's the one with the little like patch here, the goose? Oh, I'm saying? Canada goose. The Canada yeah, goose yeah. and like that, it's a different thing, but it's, I, I, I guess I don't see the harm in, I think like what makes a work timeless is like sort of its spear in the heart of it, not sort of those those particular things, depending on the story. But I, I often, for me, the branding is often an opportunity that I can like, I like want more ownership over. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick out, I'll change it to something original. But that's just for, because I want either the poetry of the actual word to sound how I want it to, or um, unless I'm getting a very particular kind of energy, like you said, you have a particular energy for a particular thing, I would include it, because that has like energy for you. But for me, unless I have that relationship to whatever brand or product or whatever, which is not never, that happens sometimes, um, I'll, tr I'll, I'll transform it to something for my own purposes. But you know, George Saunders is one of my mentors and professors. I feel like I got that from him. Uh, and it just feels like opportunity often. So that's why I think I do it more than feeling like it'd be wrong or I'll mm -hmm. be dating myself. I don't mind dating myself. Like if my work is, comes out when it came out, like I, uh, you know, it is sort of what it is. I was thinking about that last question. I said, um, I mentioned Andy Sandberg. That my book, that story came out before that his loop story mm -hmm. to, uh, just to put that right in the right place in time. But anyways, um, I don't mind it anyways, but I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned kind of like, oh, this came before that. And then like oftentimes you always, always sort of see these comments online. It's like, oh, they're just ripping off this. It's like, no, like this Dude. was the actual originator of that particular type of story. Yep. Um, but yeah, I agree. I don't think that including like these pop cultural like artifacts in the stories are a problem at all because it's an opportunity to engage with a particular moment. And it's, often, it's also often acknowledging that 
you know, what we sort of see as something as like being from the 60s, 70s or 80s, like they come back. <laughs> they eventually come back. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm seeing a lot of like preteen teenagers walking around like they're going into a Talking Heads concert right now. Like, you know, the 80s are back, you know, in force. And, you know, so, you know, whether or not that moment is happening or not, um, it could say something about your character. It could just say something about, oh, maybe the restorer, you know, that Camaro. You know, um, I think it's an opportunity to build a character and then to kind of, you know, in- introduce interesting elements in- into the story at large, um, even if you feel like it's something that might stick out. Um, you know, horror stories, I think, sort of famously, horror films particularly, sort of famously kind of try to date themselves as a device for the plot. Like, there are no cell phones, <laughs> because obviously that would kind of, you know, um, hijack the tension of, of a lot of, like, slashers. Um, and I think that's kind of true in a lot of literature, too. Sometimes you just sort of see certain kinds of technology lagging behind in terms of being included. But I, I tend not to have those same reservations, because I think, it's, again, it's an opportunity to innovate, well, what kind of other story, what kind of other horror, perhaps, could I write if this person does have a smartphone. Thank you very much. Let's have a round of applause for our guests. Thank you, guys. Wonderful, yeah, that was great. Thank y'all, that was really nice. That was good. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knickendorf with help from the students at the University of Missouri, Kansas City and the University of Minnesota. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman, and we want to thank the Unbound Book Festival for hosting us. You can subscribe to our show by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview and others at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on the website and our website at fnfpodcast.net. Happy reading.